I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following Christmas Eve teaching is the conclusion of our annual Advent series, The Long Winter Breaks, 2022. I was six years old in 1989, and it was the first Christmas that I remember really, really wanting this one specific special Christmas gift. For Ralphie Parker, it was, you know, the official Red Rider, carbon action, 200 shot. Uh, yeah, range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing which tells time. But for six-year-old Josh in 1989, my sights were set on something higher, on dinosaurs with lasers mounted on them. See, it was the 80s, and this was the time when toy companies produced Saturday morning cartoons for the sole purpose of selling action figures to children, a time when action figures boasted elaborate weaponry and play sets with diverse lines of heroes and villains and headquarters and hideouts and slime pits, from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But one oft-forgotten gem of the toy-to-cartoon and back marketing strategy was Tyco's short-lived Dino Riders. That's right. Just look at this ad. Kids in the room, look at this ad. Whoever is responsible for this is a genius. And the crown jewel of the Dino Rider toy line was, of course, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, piloted by the evil Lord Krulos, who had seized control of the ancient reptile with the Rulon brain box technology. The T-Rex came complete with full battle accessories, motorized walking action, and even included Rulon warriors like Bitor and Cobra's evil. (laughs) When I saw this box, it was honestly like someone had scanned the contents of my six-year-old brain and printed it directly on a cardboard box. In 1989, the ads were all over TV, little boys and girls having the time of their lives playing with these toys and figures and play sets, each sold separately. So I made the list. I wrote to Santa. I sat on his lap at the mall, and I described the toy in detail, and he nodded along. Yes, he told me. I know the one, fully accessorized. Yes, got it. Realistic walking action. Yes, I've heard it before. And there was... As always, you know, a veil between myself and the future through which I could not see a haze of possibilities. Would I get it? Would I not get it? But even at six, I had come to terms with the premise. You ask, you wait, and you don't know for sure. One only hopes. And then, on Christmas morning, 1989, my brother and I, we rushed from our bedroom toward the yellow glowing haze of a living room lit by a fire and electric lights as Bing Crosby issued quietly from the family stereo. My sister was only two at the time. She was new to the game. But my brother and I, we we knew enough to have gotten little to no sleep on Christmas Eve, uh, nearly sick with excitement. And there we stood in the doorway, bleary-eyed and awestruck. My dad was filming the whole thing through this enormous 80s camcorder with its own VCR and a bag. (laughs) And my mom was by the fire, smiling, and beneath the tree... There lumbered the Tyrannosaurus, already roaring. It was unboxed and magnificent, its battle armor assembled and gleaming, its realistic walking action on glorious display. It was more beautiful than I had imagined, to be quite honest. But that Christmas morning was also the first of many December 25th plot twists that my parents arranged and accomplished over the years to come. We were a mostly ordinary middle-class family in rural Georgia. My mom was a teacher. My dad worked at a paper mill. And as kids... 
the rule in our family was we, we never got toys or material goods outside of sanctioned gift-giving occasions. So it'd be in the middle of the summer, you'd be like, please, I really want this toy. They'd be like, well, you better ask Santa. So, oh, geez, it's seven months away, but okay. And even then, when we got those gifts, they were usually appropriately modest. But for Christmas, my parents liked to dazzle. Drunk on the ecstasy of a long gestating fantasy fulfilled, the long-awaited toy in hand at last, the presents all opened, our living room a war zone of torn wrapping, the smell of monkey bread in the oven. You guys don't have that as much here, but it's a wonderful thing. Adopt it for your families. That, if you hear nothing else tonight, <laughs> hear that. Adopt monkey bread for your family. But then in the middle of all that, there in 1989, my dad abruptly stands up and, you know, swiped his hands together and said, that was good. And then he politely excused himself out the back door, which was, to be clear, very strange. My brother and I looked at one another, confused, and then we heard an engine revving. So shivering in our pajamas, we rushed out the back doors and found our dad sitting in a go-kart. Now, it wasn't a, you know, fan fancy theme park buggy with safety cage or bright colors. It was honestly just a flat sheet of metal with tires on each of the corners and a wooden bench seat, but it was the best. <laughs> the next year, we got the Nintendo games that we asked for, Gremlins 2 for me, Ninja Turtles 2 for Patrick, the year of sequels apparently, but again, my dad at the end of the, the unwrapping, he excused himself out the backyard and we tore outside and found him on a trampoline. Our new trampoline. In 1991, both our parents maintained a six-month ruse that we would not, under any circumstances, be receiving a Super Nintendo when our ordinary Nintendo Entertainment System, they said, decidedly unsuper, by the way, was just fine. Why do you need another Nintendo? You've already got one. They've kept it up for months and months and months. But, oh, what's this last present behind the tree that we somehow missed? The Super Nintendo Entertainment System and all its 16-bit glory. The pattern had become so consistent, and yet somehow, I'm dead serious, it surprised us every single year. And every December 25th, by afternoon or evening, our house would fill with friends for go-kart rides or collecting injuries on the trampoline. There was no net. This was the 80s, by the way. There was no nothing. It was just like a steel, yeah, and springs and someone's legs, and oh, they're out for the day. Hooray! The rest of us keep jumping. We'd all be in our living room around, you know, fighting for the controllers to play Super Mario World. And every year, it was better than we had hoped. And we had been hoping a lot. For four weeks of Advent, we take an honest, even painful at times, inventory of the broken world in which all of us live, in which all of us wait. But tonight, we celebrate and I get it. In the grand scheme of things, a dino rider T-Rex doesn't mean much. Go-karts and trampolines and even Super Nintendos in and of themselves are just plastic and batteries and steel and gasoline and wires. But those stories, those memories, mean more to me now than they did those incredible moments of Christmas elation. Because now I can see why my dad always worked overtime every week leading up to Christmas. Even though he knew that we would outgrow the action figures, he knew that the go-kart would eventually get wrecked one too many times, and it did, or that we'd get grounded because Patrick kept kicking me out of the passenger seat when he would turn a corner. <laughs> he knew that there would eventually be more Nintendos, even more Super than the Super, 
And I can see why they relish the anticipation, the misdirection, the suspense. For them, the holiday likely vanished in a dizzying rush, as it does for me today. But for us, it was a torturous crawl, and they'd enjoy it through us. They wanted to see our faces, the sincere joy, even temporal, even temporary, that the simplicity of a child's world can find a great and glorious crescendo of jubilation in one special gift, and that you can overwhelm them with delight when what they'd been hoping for is more than they dreamed it could be, if only for a morning or a year or two. And they'd learn early on in through the years to hope at Christmas time, hope that builds to a day, to a moment. Some of our beloved Christmas traditions have no specific roots in the story of Jesus or in church tradition. Decorating homes with evergreen boughs during winter was routinely practiced by pagans as a reminder that, hey, winter is rough, but remember, spring will come eventually, again, hope. So pagans would host decorated feasts during winter solstice, again, to steward hope in what came next after the cold. But as with many pagan traditions, these things were eventually subsumed into Christian celebrations over time. As Christianity spread throughout Europe, disciples of Jesus took to decorating evergreen trees with apples to represent the Garden of Eden, calling them paradise trees, eventually, which now sounds like something Christians would do to take pagan traditions back. And they did this around the time of liturgical feasts of saints Adam and Eve, which was celebrated on December 24th, tonight. Um, there's a legend that Protestant reformer Martin Luther was said to have decorated this evergreen with candles for the first time around the 16th century. Gales and Celts burned logs decorated with holly and ivy and pine cones to cleanse themselves of the past year and welcome the new one. They also believed that the ashes would help protect them against evil spirits and lightning bolts, which does seem like an added bonus, so why not? Today, the Yule log tradition is mostly just a long video of somebody else's fireplace. Some of the traditions that many suspect are pagan in origin may have actually been rooted in the Christian tradition. Hanging stockings for Santa, for example, may be a variation of an older tradition that involved children leaving shoes filled with hay on December 5th on the eve of St. Nicholas' feast day. In the morning, kids would discover that St. Nicholas's donkey ate the hay, and in exchange, uh, generous Saint Nick would fill the empty shoes up with treats. Or the donkey, who knows? There's another very old story in which Saint Nicholas learned that a poor father was unable to pay for his three daughters' dowries, so Saint Nick dropped gold down the chimney, which landed, you guessed it, in stockings that had been hung by the fire to dry overnight. Nothing says Christmas like gold nuggets in dirty, soggy socks. Really, it doesn't actually matter. I suspect that the total number of people who bring an evergreen into their home to honor the Roman god Saturn comes in somewhere around the tune of zero. For the most part, we don't have Christmas dinner parties to celebrate solstice, at least not specifically, or burn logs to avoid demons and lightning bolts. But there's a common motif through these traditions, and that is anticipation that builds to celebration. In the story of Jesus, what we get is more than we could have imagined. The scandal of a God who came into the world not as a hurricane or as a bronzed warrior, but as a helpless human infant born to poor teenagers surrounded by dirt and manure and livestock. The nativity is the climax of anticipation to a very long wait wrought with pain and even a felt hopelessness in which God himself seemed distant and forgotten and the long-awaited promise of God to save his people seemed as if it might never come true. 
until God did more than anyone dare dream, with not a wave of cosmic power from beyond, but in a gesture of both grace and fidelity, so incredible that it borders on offensive, He came to us in our mess. For thousands of years, for those who follow Jesus, truly observing Christmas is neither an effort to overlook the world's ills nor revel in them. It is a time to hold both in the same trembling hands to remember that we live in a tragic story, but that we believe the story will not end tragically and that we know this because of Christmas. He has come to save His people from their sins, and if He came to save us once, He will come to save again once and for all. He comes to save His people from their sins, and that includes you and me, and to this purpose, Jesus arrives unexpectedly and astoundingly counterintuitive every step of the way, a human infant rather than a heavenly warrior, a peasant stonemason in a small obscure village, rather than a royal prince in a palace. God is surprising like that. And to that end, God surprises by reaching for the most hidden, most broken aspects of our stories, whether defaced by our own mistakes or by the horrible things done to us, and He repairs and restores and brings dead things back to life. He saves His people from their sins. That when we'd hoped that God would somehow see our predicament, He did so much more, more than reach down into a broken world from afar, but join us in the mess of our own making, so intent on His great uncompromising love, His intention to save us. And in the end, hope comes to fruition and salvation has the final say across the entire cosmos as far as the curse is found. Amen, King Jesus, come soon. We are waiting in anticipatory hope. Let's pray before we end our night with a little more worship. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.